when I came to US as a foreigner, I was a little bit self-conscious of myself when I was going to these networking events from college or from my internships. I was scared to be that person who would walk up to people and introduce myself when there's already a conversation that was happening. And I thought this is actually holding me back. pretty tough. We're told to balance our careers, family, health, finances, and everything else. But in today's fast-paced world, is that even possible? This is The Smiley Connection, a podcast produced by the Smiley Professionals Network. On this show, we aim to answer that very question by learning from those that are already doing it, so that you can grow both professionally and personally. Hello and yelling with everyone, it's Sony Gossam here. How many of you remember popcorn reading? For those who have no idea what I'm talking about, it does not involve eating popcorn, unfortunately. But when I was in grade school, I remember the students were asked to take turns reading a paragraph in a history book or a literature book. I would be so terrified for my turn. I would try to read ahead and practice my lines, but that didn't always help and I would often stumble on a word or be too quiet, as my teachers would say. As I got older, I continued to be timid in class, always afraid to raise my hand and answer questions even when I knew the answers. I just wasn't confident with my public speaking skills. I eventually got over it though. Being an expert communicator can be a big part of what gets us opportunities in our personal life and our professional life, whether it's persuading people about your ideas or advocating for yourself to your boss. So on this week's episode, I chatted with Danish Damani, the 25-year-old CEO and co-founder of Philadelphia-based startup called Ori, which stands for Oral AI. It's an artificial intelligence speech coach that gives its users instant feedback on how they can sound more confident in their meetings and presentations. It tracks seven variables, including a user's tone, pace, and use of filler words like um and uh. Orai started about four years ago at a hackathon at Drexel University, after Danish realized the potential in helping people speak clearly and effectively. Danish had struggled himself, and used that personal pain point to create the app. Danish and his then-college roommate Paritosh Gupta, who is now the CTO, won $2,000 at a university competition, propelling them to take their idea further. Since then, Orai has landed deals with large enterprises, including IBM and HP, and over 250,000 people have downloaded the app across the globe. But let's take a step back and first dive into how Danish got to this point. I'm born in Karachi, Pakistan. And when I was seven years old, my mother got a transfer from Al Khan University, Karachi to Al Khan University, Dar es Salaam to start the nursing program there. And that was a temporary move for us but actually ended up becoming permanent because we loved Dar es Salaam. It is truly, as the name says, the heaven of peace. It's a beautiful city and people are great. And we just enjoyed and fell in love with that place. And after, I think when I was 16 years old, I then went to Mombasa to the Al Khan Academy to just do my IB high school. And from there I graduated and went to Drugs University here in Philadelphia. You've lived in three different continents. Not many people can say that. What was it like going to school at the Aga Khan Academy in Mombasa? When I went to the Aga Khan Academy, one of its core tenets was the civic society. Being able to not just think of yourself, but to always think of 
your society or community in which you live. And that's the same things we hear in Hazri Imams Farmans. It's always about don't just seek knowledge, but seek knowledge to first understand more about Allah's creation. But number two, to be able to give back to your communities, to improve the quality of life of others. And this idea of quality of life, QOL, is a big, big thing for me. It's a big mission for me. I think of anything that I do, how can I improve the quality of life of another human being? And I don't like to think of just a hundred human beings. I think of myself as a global citizen. I think Hazri Imam has used that word global citizen. I like that word as well. And if I'm a global citizen, then I need to be thinking on the global space. And so if I'm going to spend a few years of my life building something, if I can and if I have that opportunity, then why not build something to tackle global problems? And that can help improve the QOL, the quality of life of humanity at large. And I think that's what I'm getting a chance to do right now with Ori. And that's been a great motivator to me as well. That's wonderful. And for our listeners, a couple of years ago, you, along with another graduate of the Khan Academy, pledged to give $10,000 to the Academy to support and promote entrepreneurship, which goes back to your point about doing things for our communities and society, which is terrific. You said before that entrepreneurship is not a job, it's a mindset, and that you had it all along in your life. You said, I quote, I know that this is what I am. I am an entrepreneur. What parts of your life informed that mindset? It is definitely a mindset. When people think of entrepreneurship as, hey, I'm going to run a startup, I'm going to have an app company, I'm going to do a business, that is not a holistic view of what entrepreneurship is. Entrepreneurship is the way you think and the way you think can be in your daily lives. You see an inefficiency or you see a problem that's worth solving and you solve that, you're an entrepreneur. If you're sitting on your dining table and your dining table is creaking from side to side and you notice that one of the knobs at the bottom came out or broke and you take a piece of tissue paper fold it into about eight squares and put it there. And now the whole family is enjoying eating meals again on your dining table. That is entrepreneur for me. You are looking at problems, inefficiencies in your day-to-day lives and solving them. You don't necessarily need to have a business. You can be an entrepreneur inside your organization as well. I've definitely done that tissue paper trick when you're sitting at a creaky table or an unstable chair. So I guess that makes me an entrepreneur too. Was there anything else that stuck out to you as a child that fueled your motivation to help others or think more creatively about finding solutions? I think money plays a role here. Money is one of the biggest forms of drivers for human beings. And we were not the most well-off family. I remember when we moved to Dar es Salaam, in order to save money, we would walk about five miles to the nearest grocery store, to the supermarket, and then pay for the taxi only on the way back, instead of going with taxi both ways. Why? So that we could save some money there. So growing up, I knew the importance of money, and I knew from the get-go that in order to make money, you have to deliver value, you have to problem solve. And so those things actually go hand in hand to me. And I know there are people out there who believe that you shouldn't think of money so much 
but I think it is part and parcel of delivering value, of exchanging value, because if you're offering a service and you're solving problems that no one is giving you value in exchange for, how do you know if that problem you're solving is big enough? So even in middle school, I think, or in high school, I knew that there were students who wanted additional help in addition to the classroom stuff that the teacher was teaching. And I offered them, hey, I could tutor you during lunch breaks. And I think that was entrepreneurship for me. I saw a problem. I saw a need in the market, which was a few students were still struggling. And I thought I could help them with my service, which is teaching them the concept that I understood or the notes that I took. You eventually ended up at Drexel University in Philadelphia. When you started college, did you have a feeling that you were going to start your own business one day? Is that something you were interested in? Not at all. I didn't even know the word entrepreneurship when I came to the US. I didn't even know the word startup or VC stuff. I, I knew I was using Facebook, but never knew it was a startup. So this idea of entrepreneurship or this idea of starting a business was alien to me. I studied mechanical engineering. The reason I studied mechanical engineering was because in high school, I did great in math and physics. So that was the next step. You become an engineer. I took mechanical engineering because I liked building stuff and I loved Elon Musk and I wanted to work either in SpaceX or Tesla. That was my goal, to be an engineer, a nice hardworking engineer, a smart engineer who works on big engineering problems like autonomous vehicles or space travel. So where did the idea for Arai come from? And when was that moment when you thought, I think I'm onto something? I don't think it was one point in timeline that was, this is when we're going to do Arai. It was a sequence of steps. So the beginning of it was at a hackathon where we actually built a prototype for this. But you can even go a few steps back and know that I had this personal fear ingrained in me. When I came to US as a foreigner, I was a little bit self-conscious of myself when I was going to these networking events from college or from my internships. I was scared to be that person who would walk up to people and introduce myself when there's already a conversation that was happening. And I thought, this is actually holding me back. I need to do something about it. And then one of my managers at my internship told me, Danish, you're putting a glass ceiling on your head. You'll never become a manager. You'll never become a leader if you don't sound more confident, if you don't work on your communication skills. And I asked her, what should I do? I have no clue on this. And she recommended I try this public speaking club called Toastmasters, which is one of the greatest gifts in my life. I went there religiously, week after week, and you just go there, speak, people give you feedback, and you repeat. And that itself, practice feedback, practice feedback, that loop really made me more confident in my own voice and gave me this ability to influence, this ability to go up and speak to any crowd and command the room. And that was a powerful gift. And I wanted to bring that to everybody. I knew that everybody in the world could benefit from the skill of confidence in your speaking, of being able to command a room, of being able to influence people. And at that hackathon, 
I think the stars just aligned and we came up with this concept that could actually do something like that. Were there any books or resources you used to help you grow or learn skills in building a product? Books? Not so much. But now if I go back, I would highly, highly recommend reading the book, The Startup Owner's Manual, and as well as like The Lean Startup Methodology by Eric Ries, Running Lean by Ash Moreya. These books actually help you formalize the process of creating a startup from an idea to validating it, to creating prototypes, and then to creating real code and finally going to market. It's a step-by-step approach. Most entrepreneurs like to wing it, and I highly recommend not to wing it. If I could go back four years ago, I would make myself read those books before doing anything else. But back then we didn't do that, but we did use internet for everything. When we were looking at building an app, we studied online. When we wanted to build computational algorithms on communication skills, we read research online. How did you and Perthosh start building Arai while taking classes and studying for tests? How did you balance school and running your own business? There's always time. It's all about priorities. You have 24 hours in a day. Assume you're sleeping for eight. You still have about 16 hours left. From those 16 hours, I think college only takes about eight. So you have eight more hours to do other stuff like praying, like eating, like socializing. So every day you have at least four hours to work on a side hustle. Think of Aura as my side hustle when I was in college. Imagine every day you have four hours, perhaps on the weekends you have eight hours. So four times five is 20 plus 16. That's 36 hours in a week, I think, that you can actually devote to a side hustle. That is substantial. It's all about priorities. So yes, you can make that time. So the next time anyone says they're too lazy to do something or they don't have time or they're too busy to build in time, I will definitely make them listen to you. And the best way to realize that is by using a calendar. I have told so many of my peers and my friends, use a calendar. Forget about planning the future, but at least every Friday or every Sunday, go back, reflect on your week, or at the end of every day, just put down how you spent your day. How did you spend your 24 hours? If you can have a log, if you can measure how you spent your time, you can be a better predictor of that time. You can be a better manager of that time if you know where your time is going. I can bet you there's so many people in this world who don't know what they did this past week. They don't know where half of their time went. It just magically disappeared. I'm guilty of that as well. Going back to your time at Drexel, can you walk us through the first moment where you and Ferdos start to really try and think through what skills you were going to need to be able to build Ori from the ground up and to scale the product and get users? We were not thinking of any of those things during the first day. The first day was just a hackathon. Hey, let's just build this thing. We have this cool idea that we can help other engineers be able to better present themselves in this hackathon and we just built something that was a virtual reality app you put on your google cardboard you see a stage and a podium in your slides you speak after you're done you get feedback on how fast or slow you spoke your transcript and your ums and us that is it that was our mvp we came top 10 
and we're like, great, this is a great project that we can put on our resumes so that we can get that engineering job that we want after graduation. So we were not thinking of scaling the product. We were not thinking of getting users. We were not thinking how we can continue building this. So this was purely sort of a side hobby. Yeah, I wouldn't even call it a hobby. I would just say two days. That's it. But those two days then were sitting on a shelf and we were back to our college, back to the daily tests and the daily school grind. And then there was a business plan competition. We're like, okay, let's apply to this business plan competition where we put in this concept. We showed some revenue potential, the market potential, some futuristic features that we can have. And we actually came I think third place in that where we won $2,000, I think. And that is when we felt, hey, this is not just a side project. This can actually become a business that we can actually pursue. Let's spend some time on this. When people put money for your ideas, you know you have something. So what happened next? That inspired us to apply to other business plan competitions. If you just Google college business plan competitions, you'll be amazed how many business plan competitions there are for undergrads and grad students. And we applied to so many. One another place, we won 5,000. One place, we won 15,000. And we're like, all right, this is a real thing. I'm actually going to see if I can graduate early because I was in an accelerated BSMS program. So I dropped my MS degree. And instead of graduating in 2018, I graduated in 2017 and decided to do this full-time right after that. And how did your parents feel when you told them that this is what you wanted to do after graduating college, despite having studied mechanical engineering? How did that conversation go? Just like the startup initiation, there is no one step where we had that conversation. My parents were always in the loop. They always knew what kind of things I was doing. And so it wasn't, hey, a Saturday afternoon, let's talk to my parents. I'm doing this. No, I think they saw it coming. And as a great communicator, your parents have to be influenced at times because they are stakeholders in your career, in your life trajectory. So you have to convince them why going into this trajectory is going to end up with a better outcome for me as an individual, but for us as a family as well. Would you say they were 100% supportive from the start? I would say 95%. It's very hard to get parents 100% or anybody 100% convinced. How did that 100% happen? Especially because when you're graduating college and you want to start this business, you need money and a stable income. How are you able to convince your parents? Well, I told them that, look, let's look at the worst case scenario. Worst case scenario is I spend a year or two years on this. You support me. I need $15,000 to survive. For the whole year, I'll stay in cheap apartments, sharing a roommate, and I'll try to minimize my cost. So overall, that's the worst case scenario. Now let's look at the best case scenario. Best case scenario is we become a rocket ship. We raise investor money and the whole world knows about us. And... After a few years, I become a millionaire. So it's all about that risk to reward ratio. And I think I convinced them that the reward is worth it with the risk involved. 
How long did it take for Arai to start bringing in money? That's a tough question because sometimes your company can bring in money and that's not good enough. Because as a startup, you're not going to achieve profitability for years. Even right now, Arai is not a profitable company. That's why you have taken investor money. You're burning more money than you're actually making. So I think there are other criterias to framing whether what you're doing is a viable business. Money would just be one aspect. Other aspects are customers. Other aspects are users, how they're using your product, what kind of feedback are they giving. All of those things actually come into play together. So how did Arai take off? Can you walk us through that process? Well, we launched our first version of the app March 21st, 2017. And initially, no one found out about it. And that's actually a very big learning. You might think that you have the best idea in the world. You might spend a year building it and you launch it and actually no one comes to you. And that's very true. That's where marketing and sales actually take control. There are hundreds and millions of apps out there, hundreds and millions of services and products out there. No one is going to find out about your product just randomly by chance. You have to make an effort towards marketing and selling your product. For us, we reach out to our friends and family. Hey, 50 to 100 friends and families, please download the app and leave us a nice review. And the co-founders did the same thing. The team did the same thing. And we would ask our friends and family to share it with two, three other people. So that's the initial push towards getting into market. Maybe we got about 500 users from there. And also then the next step was applying to these business plan competitions where we got some publicity. When we won one of those competitions, people would find out about us. We would get quoted in different articles like Fast Company, Wired. TechCrunch, and that's where more and more users started coming in. So what was it like to participate in these competitions? It's scary. It's scary because you are in front of judges who are really smart, who know what they're doing, and here you are, a 20, 21-year-old student. You don't even have experience in the real world as much, and here you are showing or saying how you're going to change the world. So it's really scary because sometimes you're also BSing a little bit. You're making assumptions that could be very false, but how confident you sound can actually change the way people interpret your message. So it's a little bit scary, but overall a great experience. Would you say your own app helped you in a sense become more confident or were there other avenues that you used? 101%. I was my ideal persona for my own product with the domain expertise. And that is so critical when you're creating a product, you're solving a problem. You need to know someone or you need to be that person whose problem you're solving. If not, then it's really hard to truly solve a problem from in and out. How much did you raise at the end of the day through all these competitions? In total, we won about $75,000 from business plan competitions the smallest one being $50 to the largest one being twenty five dollars or $35,000. They were all university competitions. 
And then how did you move from university competitions to raising money from investors? So college competitions only can get you so far, right? It was good enough to give us like that that trampoline to getting a product out there, to getting some traction that we can validate. But the next clear step for us was to get some more substantial funding. And I think of it as steps. The first step is always going to be your friends and family. If your friends and family can support you, that's awesome. If they're not going to support you, then you need to find alternative sources of revenue or sources of money. For us, it was business plan competitions. It could also be an SBA grant, Small Business Association grant, or an NSF funding. All of these are things that you do in your first step. Your second step usually becomes an accelerator program. For us, it was an accelerator program. We applied to Techstars, which is one of the best accelerators in the world. There, we got $120,000 and a ton of mentorship. And right after the accelerator program, we ended up raising our seed round around $2.3 million. Wow, that's a lot. It's a lot. Raising money, by the way, is not a super healthy indicator of business viability. I just want to put it out there. Because founders sometimes tend to get a big head, and I did as well, when everyone would come to me and be like, oh my God, you're so successful. You raised $2.3 million. It is not true. You're not successful because you raised money. You raised money because you could pitch your idea properly and your investors bought into it does not determine success. There are so many startups who fail even after raising money. So founders out there or even non-founders out there, if you see a founder who has raised a lot of money, it's not an indication of success per se. The best indication of success is if you're solving a real pain point for a wide array of customers. That's the best one. How long did it take until you monetized the product? I think that was one of the big mistakes that we made. We thought, like some entrepreneurs, let's just make this free and people will come to us and then we'll figure out a way of monetizing it down the road. That is bad. Because first thing, the kind of market segment that you go after who will use it for free is very different from the market segment who actually end up paying for your service. So one big advice that I give to entrepreneurs is monetize your product from day one. If there is no exchange of value, then you're not building something of value. And if you cannot know you're building a thing of value, you're just going to be going round and round. So I think we monetized too late. I think we started monetizing a year and a half after launching. I would have definitely done it from day one. And even being a little bit more aggressive in monetizing. Even after a year and a half, we had a very, very generous freemium model. But we switched that about eight months ago, I think, or seven months ago. And that has had a very big impact on the quality of users we attract, on the revenue as well. So how did you end up marketing to your users and customers? How did you go from not being known to having a user base? I think after we raised our money, our round, we ended up pivoting to B2B. Instead of targeting consumers, we started targeting enterprises. So we would target, let's say, the head of learning and development at Comcast. And we would tell them, hey, you are spending some money sending people to speech coaching, sending people to public speaking workshops. Instead, you can give them Ori, which is an AI speech coach, and it'll help them come to a similar level. So that's been the pitch right now to enterprises that we've been doing for the past year or so. 
question. How many enterprises have you worked with so far? Around eight. Comcast was one of our first customers. They've also been a great source of feedback for us. HPE is another one of them. IBM is another one and a few others. What was it like to land these partnerships with big enterprises? How did that make you feel? So beautiful. I still remember sending out a proposal with a lot of money on it and actually having them pay for that. That was great validation that, hey, you're actually building something that is of value. And we're not talking about small companies here. We're talking about big companies with really smart people, with budgets that they could spend money on other things. They decided to spend that on you. That is a very beautiful feeling. That's wonderful. It sounds rewarding to know that people believe in you and your product. When you're writing these proposals and requesting a certain value from these enterprises, what goes into that thought process? How do you come up with that value? I'll be honest, it's more random than logical here. Because as a startup, you actually don't know what is the value of the product you're providing, especially when it is a very new market. If you're in an existing market, so let's say if I launch a competitor for Zoom, a video conferencing tool, I know how I can charge. But if I'm creating a completely new product in a new market, it's hard to decide what value to put. So it's all about iteration, it's all about experimentation. You say, we'll charge you $50. And based on how easily this person accepted, you go to your next customer and be like, we'll sell it to you for $100. Again, based on how easily they accept or object, you either decide to raise it again or to reduce it. And I would say even after a year and a half of selling to enterprises, I'm still in that boat, still iterating on my pricing. So you and Burthos were just two people, two 20-year-olds working on this project. How did you eventually expand your team? When was the first time you were like, okay, we need to onboard more people to help us with this project? That was actually a very big learning for me. As an engineer, I thought, I don't need other people. I think the two of us can change the world. But if you truly want to change the world, if you truly want to build a product that scales and delivers value, you need a team. And finding a team, building a team, managing a team, making sure the team is happy is actually way harder than it seems. We have struggled. We have made mistakes. We have had team members who have been frustrated by us as leaders. We have had team members who have been super happy at the same time. Again, about iteration. It's about having a growth mindset. It's about learning. But the first point it came to us was, when we knew that we had something that the world needed and we were just not moving fast enough. And we felt like we had some money in the bank to spend on a team member. That's when we are like, okay, let's hire someone. At what point in time did you make your first hire? So immediately when we were winning these business plan competitions, we didn't hire an employee per se, but we hired a dev shop out in India where we paid them 15 to $17 per hour to help us build out our app faster. We could have spent another six months trying to learn this skill ourselves and building out an iOS and or an Android app, but we decided let's spend the money. Time is of the essence. Time is something that you can never get back. Money is something that can always come. So let's spend that money, accelerate the product, and get to market faster. That was the first time. Then in 2017, I think our next two people, the next person was Asim Sani, who is now our third co-founder. We were not looking per se, but 
I think it was serendipitous where we just came across, we met at Drexel and we bonded, we connected. Asim also had similar challenges, the same pain points from early on in his life about public speaking and fear as well. And he was really smart. He was really smart. So we brought him on as well. We gave him an internship, ended up deciding that he is far, far more capable. And we ended up giving him more and more tasks. And then our next hire was Felicia. Felicia was one of our users and she was working at Deloitte and she just reached out to us. She's like, hey, this might seem out of the blue, but I'm wondering, I love using Ori, and I'm wondering if you might have an opening for a designer. Here's my resume. And she ended up being our next hire, even though we were not looking per se for a designer. So I want to revisit something that you said just a few minutes ago about how there are moments where people that worked for you were frustrated by you as a leader at times. What have you learned during this journey about what it means to be an effective leader? So many things. That could be another podcast, an hour-long podcast. Learnings on leadership and managing a team. But if we were to distill it, one of the biggest ones is empathy. Really trying to put yourself in the shoe of your employee. If you can do that effectively, you know about their challenges before they bring them up to you. You know when you're sitting with them, you know exactly the kind of concerns that they are going to bring up because you know what they are doing and you know what their challenges are. If you can be an empathetic leader and you can help resolve issues proactively, you're going to be a great leader. Is it hard being your own boss? It is hard being your own boss because any free hour you have, first thing, forget even free hour, you're always just thinking. When you're sleeping, you're thinking of your business. When you're awake, you're thinking of your business. When you are in Jamaat Khana, you're thinking of your business. When you are eating, you're thinking of your business. So it's always on. And that's a hard thing. That's actually a skill that one has to learn on when to turn this off. It took me a few years to realize how to do that, but it's so critical. You need to know how to turn off and when to turn on. Otherwise, it's not healthy. Speaking of Jamaat Khana, what role has the Smiley faith and community played in your own journey? Do you credit part of your success to your faith and the connections you've made along the way? 100%. I think two big things. Number one, keeping me sane. If you have a community you can go to or a place of prayer, a place of contemplation where you can get out of this worldly rut, it makes a big difference to keeping you sane. And it also brings you the idea of impermanence because as your mom says, this material life that we have is just a short passage in eternity. So it brings up this concept of our human lives, this 50 years, 100 years that we have is actually a short passage in eternity. Our true selves is the soul. So everything that we are doing is almost inconsequential to the bigger picture the bigger purpose of life. So whether Ori fails or succeeds, it's actually going to have minimal impact on my soul. Yes, it can make me happy. And if I'm happy, I might be more inclined to pray, more inclined to go kane. But overall, very low impact. So think of things as impermanent. That helps me keep myself sane. But then the bigger, big aspect of having this community is the network. It's amazing how 
our Ismaili community can rally behind you and try to make you successful. And we have all these different institutional programming. Our institutions are so strong and we have programs from the IPN, from EPB, like IPN has this program called Launchpad. At Launchpad, I pitched Orai there, found a few investors, found a few people who connected me with enterprise customers, and even found one of our mentors and advisors, Saba Karim, who actually, fun fact, came up with the name Orai. I didn't come up with it. Paritosh didn't come up with it. It was an Ismaili connection that we met at IPN Launchpad who helped us with the branding, the logo, and the name of Orai and the first website. So that's the kind of community we have. Fully agreed. And speaking of Saba Karim, you said that he came up with the name for Orai. What was the first name that you came up with and how did it evolve into Orai? We have used the word iteration so many things. Pricing is an iteration, convincing parents is an iteration, building a product and coming up with the ideas iteration. Same like that, coming up with a name was an iteration. At the hackathon, we were called Say Um. We quickly realized that might not work as a business name. So we switched to Oratio. I thought I was smart in that because it was Latin for speech, but people were actually getting confused. They're like, what is this word? Is it Oratio with a ratio, like mathematical ratio, or is it Oratio? And we're like, okay, we need to change this. So we changed it to Vocalytics, but that sounded a little bit too much. And finally, we narrowed down to Orai, which Saba is like Danish. Four letters, Orai, stands for Oral, artificial intelligence. I'm like, great, that sounds amazing. And we have had it since. So during this journey, have you relied on others for mentorship or to give you advice and help think through strategically what your next steps are? So many people. It literally takes a village to raise a startup. It's not a two-person thing. It's not a five-person team thing. It goes beyond just your team. It goes to these network advisors we have. And I'm so grateful for all the advisors that we have had from inception to now. And even advisors are iterative because at different life cycles of your company, of your idea, you need different expertise. At the beginning, you might need someone who is an expert at getting something off the ground. Now, when you have something off the ground and need someone to make it more stable, that's a completely different type of advice. But Saba has helped us throughout. Even right now, sometimes I bounce marketing ideas with him. He's also part of Techstars. And I would credit him to helping us get into Techstars as well, because Techstars actually changed the life of Ori, helped us gain customers, helped us with the network, and helped us with fundraising as well. For listeners who don't know, Techstars is a global platform for investment innovation that helps connect people that are part of this program to entrepreneurs, executives, and investors. So Danish, at what point did you participate in Techstars and how did that process go? So Saba told us to apply to Techstars in 2017, right after I graduated. We didn't get in. Then 2018 came and Saba is like, Danish, please apply again. And so we did. And we finally got in 2018 summer. There's always that ego that tells you they didn't select me the first time. It's been a year. I've made more progress. I'm not going to apply again. But then you need people like Saba, you need advisors who actually ground you and make you think more logically and practically and make you realize that, have you really made a lot of progress in that one year? Have you really moved the needle? And after reflecting again on that, it was true. One year by ourselves, 
we didn't actually manage to move that needle a lot, partly because we do not have the experience of building and scaling a startup, but Techstars does. And so that three months program that we went through actually felt like one year worth of progress. I think that also says something about being self-aware and realizing that we all can learn more and improve ourselves. And sometimes we might think we're ready for something, but maybe we just need more training. Is that something that you would say is a lesson that you've learned? I have learned it the hard way. And for the listeners, definitely. There are books on this around growth mindset, around radical acceptance or being able to accept who you are, being able to accept and be aware of your knowns and your unknowns and being always out there and putting your ego aside to listening to people and figuring out what might be the multiple truths out there on the table and then choosing, using your intuition, using your gut feeling, the truth that you want to pursue. Another theme that we've touched on a lot during this conversation is the idea of continuously evolving. Whether it was evolving your name for your product or evolving yourself as you were learning through different skills and going through different challenges. What other challenges have you faced? I think one of the biggest challenges that we are going through right now with the last six months is coming to reality that the problem we're solving is not big enough. And that might sound a little bit contradictory when I said that it is a global problem, but at the same time, it's not a big enough problem. It's true that everyone can benefit from better communication skills. However, what I'm finding as market reality is people don't really think of it as a painkiller. They think of it as a nice to have, like a vitamin. And so getting people to pay money for working on a skill that they don't think of it as a painkiller is actually hard. And so a big learning for me is when you're out there trying to pick a problem to solve, it's good that the problem is wide ranging, it's across the globe. But the other thing you need to know in mind is, is a problem a deep enough problem? Is it a problem that actually puts people and makes them stay awake at night over a long period of time? And frankly, with communication or public speaking skills, it's not really something that puts millions of people awake. They still manage to communicate. Now, can they be better? Yes, just like a vitamin. So as an evolution, we are now having to solve this challenge. Do we continue educating the market that they can get better at this and therefore increase the value of their potential career, for example? Or do we pivot and figure out another problem to solve that's also wide ranging, but is actually deep enough. So we are in that dilemma right now, and we're looking at a few different opportunities. What would you say has been the most rewarding moment for you so far? I think when your customers validate that they are getting value out of your product, that's one of the most rewarding things, listening to your customers. And on the similar lines, I remember once I was at the South by Southwest conference wearing my ORI t-shirt, wearing it proudly. And at one of the breakout sessions, people come to me and they're like, oh, I have used that product. And another person next to them is like, oh yeah, is it the public speaking product? I have used that as well. And that's amazing because you have actually built something that people, random people that you have never known of are actually using it and actually speaking good about it. That's one of the best feelings ever when you're building something and launching something. That definitely sounds like a really amazing feeling. 
and it feels like that kind of keeps you motivated and inspired. So what's next for you and Orai? Well, the biggest thing is that challenge that I mentioned at the very end, which is figuring out the next big problem that we can actually solve. One hypothesis for us is sales, going into the sales training space, where we can help startups and software companies onboard their sales reps 40% faster. That's the audacious goal that we've set across for us. And we're trying to figure out if we can actually do that. That's right now the biggest thing on our plate. Well, I wish you the best of luck on that. And last question, what are two or three main takeaways that listeners should keep in mind from this conversation? Out of the so many that we already gave them, I would say if you are starting something, please follow a process. Look at the book, Startup Owner's Manual or Running Lean, and they provide you with a process, a step-by-step process on actually validating if the problem you're solving is big enough or deep enough. Please do not spend money hiring app developers, writing a single line of code before validating your product. You do not need money. You do not need coding experience to know whether what you're going to build is going to be successful. That is the biggest tip I would give to any entrepreneur out there. If you are an entrepreneur who's already running a business, I would also recommend you to read that book because a lot of entrepreneurs like to wing it and I would highly recommend trying that out. And if you are quote unquote not an entrepreneur but you still have that entrepreneur mindset, you're working inside an organization and you have aspirations to become an entrepreneur, I would highly recommend doing that calendar thing that I've mentioned about where you know where your time is going and figuring out if you have those 36 hours or even 20 hours that you can spend on a side hustle. If you do manage to do that and validate your ideas on the side, it'll really help you take control of your own career, take control of your destiny, take control of your wealth, and take care of your family. If you're interested in connecting with Danish Damani, you can find him on LinkedIn. You can also send an email to him at hello at arai.com. And if you'd like to check out Arai, you can download the app from Google Play or the Apple Store and get a free seven-day trial. During those seven days, you can access all of Arai's lessons on communication skills, storytelling, the power of a pause, and so much more. Now, what are you waiting for? What will you do with your 16 hours a week? Thank you all so much for listening. If you liked this episode of The Smile Connection, please share it on social media. And don't forget to show your support by subscribing. Give us a five-star rating and a glowing review. You can find the podcast on Spotify, Google, and Apple. We also want to hear your feedback and any questions you want to answer on the show. So email us at ipnpodcast at ipnonline.net. This episode was written by me and edited by Cassie Lee. Our cover art is designed by Nadia Khan and Shaquille Momad. Our marketing is also by Shaquille and Amber Verani. Also, thanks to Zoma Momad, who has been managing this massive project from the start, and Farhan Mangiani for his guidance and help along the way. Our intro music is the funky podcast intro by Robert Reed. Other music in this episode are Faye, Glimpse of Eternity, Between, Story, Please Wake Up, The Beauty of Mats, and Pure Water, all by Maiden. Also included is Action by Montplacier, Snowing by Peter Rudenko, Groove and Hustle by Kevin McLeod, and Something Elated by Broke for Free. 
This podcast would not have been possible without the teamwork and help from those who believed in it. And for that, we're grateful.